The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Amen. Let's continue our worship as we look at God's Word together. And I would invite you, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians 13. That's where we're going to be today. And we have been going through the book of Corinthians from the very beginning chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, and we've spent the last few weeks in 1 Corinthians. And we're going to actually finish chapter 13 today, Lord willing. Uh, Verses 8 through 13 is a unit that goes together. Paragraph of thought that's unified. We don't want to break up and lose the continuity that Paul and the Holy Spirit intended. So let's go ahead and look at that together. Uh, Also, by way of reminder, we're in chapter 13, so we're in the middle of a a section, chapters 12, 13, and 14 all go together as Paul's been talking about spiritual gifts that were had become a problem in the Corinthian church. Spiritual gifts aren't a problem, but the attitude of the, the Corinthians regarding their spiritual gifts became a divisive issue. And so he has to spend three entire chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, to rebuke them regarding their ungodly, self-centered attitude about spiritual gifts. And also he spends three entire chapters to correct their thinking. And with correcting their thinking, he actually gives some new revelation too, which is helpful for all Christians. Early on, uh, there was a foreshadowing in Paul's epistle in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to let us know that this was kind of going to be an epistle of rebuke, a long one. And he hints at some of the problems. One of the main problems, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 13, but just by way of reminder, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he heard that there were quarrels among the people, division, they were being divisive, they weren't getting along, they were bad testimony. And some of this division had to do with spiritual gifts, as we're finding out in 12, 13, and 14. And in chapter 1, verse 5 and following, he alludes to their spiritual giftedness. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he said, uh, I thank God that in everything, that in everything you were enriched in Christ, made rich by Jesus Christ, blessed by Christ, specifically in all speech. How are they blessed? That's not just in the way they talk. That was with the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of the word of knowledge, the gift of the word of wisdom, and the gift of prophecy. These spiritual gifts they were enriched with, Paul recognizes uh, God's blessed you, he saved you, and then he blessed you with these tremendous spiritual gifts, and he's blessed you in all speech. That's what he's talking about, the spiritual gifts. God's, Christ has blessed you with all speech and in all knowledge. So he specifically is referring to the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge that some of them had and some of them boasted about having. And he deals with this specifically in chapter 8 and in chapter 12 through 14. Verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you because you believed, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. So in the very beginning, Paul recognized and commended them for believing in the gospel, for following Christ, for being Christians. And he also recognizes that God has richly blessed you as a Christian and he's given you these tremendous gifts that are clearly evident in your congregation, speaking in tongues, prophecy, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom. And then it's later that he's going to specifically deal with those in terms of how they had uh, been misused and abused to the point of being a bad testimony, misunderstood, and even being divisive in the church. So 
Uh, that's where we are now. 12, 13, and 14. Uh, an extended uh, rebuke to the Corinthian church not to be divisive regarding spiritual gifts. <laughs> that's actually a great summary statement and lesson we could take away from chapter 12, 13, and 14 after weeks and weeks and weeks of studying these passages. If we just walked away with what was the main truth in chapter 12, 13, and 14 of Corinthians? Well, Paul was reminding the Corinthians, don't be argumentative and unloving when it comes to spiritual gifts in the church. Wow, don't we need that message in the evangelical church today and for the last 50 years? Because what has the church been squabbling about for the last 50 years? Well, there's a few issues. One of the main ones that gets most contentious and heated is our view of spiritual gifts. Five views of speaking in tongues, four views of this and that. Well, wow, we need to heed Paul's caution through the Holy Spirit here. Don't argue and fight and become divisive with fellow Christians about spiritual gifts. Speak the truth in love. Yes. Be patient with each other. Yes. Be godly and humble. Yes. Be open to correction, change, and information. Yes. Fight and argue and be divisive about it. No. So that's what Paul's arguing. So that puts us in context. So let's go ahead and look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13 now, verses 8 through 13. Uh, if you were to ask most people, what is 1 Corinthians 13 about? Most Christians, they would probably say, oh, that's about love. And I'd say, mm, yes, but that's not all it's about. That's not a complete answer. It's actually the complete answer. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love and the spiritual gifts. Love is described many different ways in many verses, but I would posit that Spiritual gifts are just as dominant all throughout the entire chapter. Spiritual gifts are mentioned in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, and then verse 8 through 13. So the spiritual gifts actually dominate chapter 13. And that's what he's doing. He's comparing spiritual gifts with love. They were out of balance. They were using spiritual gifts, misusing spiritual gifts, and the greatest misuse was trying to use the gifts without the motivation of love towards others and serving them. So that's what his argument is here. And so that's what he's been highlighting is how great the uh, love is, is the greatest Christian virtue of all. And so that's why he uh, started out with the exhortation that uh, if you're using your spiritual gifts without love, it is worthless. You are nothing. You need to be loving in all of this. Love is the fulfillment of the Christian imperative. And then he, just, he takes the time to describe what biblical Christian love is very specifically, as he delineates 15 attributes or characteristics of love for the Corinthians to make sure they really understood and to highlight that Paul meant this was a priority. He was being emphatic. Another reason that Paul needs to actually delineate a definition of love so carefully and so specifically and in terms of describing it in terms of action form is because the word agape, which is the word for love uh, used in chapter 13, verse 1, and also uh, verse 8, and in verse 13, agape, that was a Christian word for love. It's a Greek word. Paul used it. John used it. Jesus used it. The Christian community used it to describe the highest virtue of God's mercy, grace, love bestowed upon man. Agape was the word they used. The problem was it was a Greek word that was somewhat obscure and hardly ever used in the Greek culture prior to the days of the church and the apostles. They had, had different words for love. They didn't use the word agape. So it is very possible that to the Corinthians, who had a pagan background, 
a Greek background, a pagan Roman background, they weren't really familiar with this word agape. Yeah, I know we're supposed to agape, but you know what does that mean? It was not a familiar word in the vocabulary. So Paul had to define it very picturesque in, in a concrete manner as well. So that could be one of the reasons that he did that, and it's helpful for us. So it is a term that uh, was grabbed upon by Jesus and the church and the apostles and the Holy Spirit and infused with new supernatural divine truth and has become the standard of one of the very character traits of God Almighty himself. Uh, agape love, and that's the word being used here, a supernatural divine uh, part that comes from God. Uh, let's go ahead and look at verses 8 through 13 now after describing love. And then your handout I provided for you. I actually want to fill in the three points on the outline first and then go back so we don't miss the point. Here are the three summary points of what Paul is trying to say in 1 Corinthians 8 through 13. And, and the summary statement there in the title is love is forever. That is his main point. Love goes on forever and ever. Love goes on forever and ever. In contrast to spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts do not go on forever and ever. Spiritual gifts are not eternal. They are only for this world. They are temporary. They are transitory. So if your identity is in your spiritual gift, Corinthian, you know, some of them, their identity was in their spiritual gift. I can speak in tongues. I can prophesy. I can do all these showy gifts. And their identity was in that instead of in Christ. And Paul's saying, whoa, wait a minute. You know what? That gift could very well pass away. It will not be needed. It will be superfluous, especially when you get to heaven. You won't have that spiritual gift anymore. But what does matter is love because it is eternal. It abides forever. So that's his main theme. Love is the thing that remains. Love is the priority. Love is forever. Love endures. Spiritual gifts not. So look at point number one. Uh, verse eight. Spiritual gifts are temporary. That's his first point. Point number two. Spiritual gifts are limited in what they can do and in what they can accomplish and even the edification that they bring. They are limited. Love is not limited. That's verses 9 through 12. And then point number 3, verse uh, 13 is kind of the crescendo. And love lasts forever and is not limited. Love lasts forever and it is not limited. So uh, let's go ahead and look at those three main points as they're unfolded by Paul. Now, before we actually go verse by verse and explain some of the highlights here, uh, a couple introductory comments that need to be made. First Corinthians presents the expositor, the Bible teacher, the exegete, uh, the theologian, whatever, with some of the most difficult challenges in terms of Bible interpretation, in my opinion, in the Bible. One of those was already, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11 on the head coverings. Very difficult passage uh, and some verses. I, I don't know what they mean. Because of the angels. I have no idea what that means. Something about angels. Um... And then there's a couple others coming up. The baptism of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. Who knows what that means? We don't have the information. Just a little soundbite. Uh, and, so, and there's going to be a couple more. And I would say I'd put 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13 in the top five of difficult passages in Corinthians, maybe in the New Testament. Um, so we've got some challenges here. Interpretive. And I would also say that some of the challenges result... Uh, from the translations. So what I did is I took four of the top English translations, the ESV, the more uh, modern one, or recent one, I should say, the English Standard Version, the ESV, the King James Version, the NIV, and the NAS. Those are four very popular English translations. Wrote them all out, compared the translations, and there's disparity among those four translations. And I think very important words in this text. And then I also had my Greek text and was using that primarily. 
because that needs to be the standard in former English translations. And so I want to give you, from the Greek text, in my opinion, uh, the best translation. Actually, not one of the English translations had the best entire translation, but all four English translations together give, I think, what is the best, most precise and accurate translation of the Greek text here that's really going to help us. So just a few words I want you to keep in mind. Maybe write down, or you can even write them down in your Bible or whatever if it's helpful. Because I want to give you those first. Then I want to read my translation of the text. Based just on the Greek text is all. And also uh, informed by what I think uh, are some key interpretations of words. So first of all is chapter 8, verse 1. Love never fails. Now King James said love charity. By the way, charity, there you go. It's love, it's not charity. Those are two different things. But that's 1600 where they came up with charity, which came back from Jerome 400. So it should be love. But King James says charity. But it should be love. That's the best translation for agape. Uh, King James says, Charity never faileth. Now, I don't like that word faileth because I spit every time I say it, but charity never faileth. And then uh, the New International Version says, Love never fails, which is pretty good. And then the New American Standard says, Love never fails, which is pretty good. It's open to interpretation. Fails. Because when you hear love never fails, there's two things that could pop into your mind and they are both legitimate things that could pop into your mind. Love never fails could mean or have the emphasis or nuance of that love works every time it's tried. Love is foolproof. So that's speaking of the efficacy of love. That is possible. But another thing that could pop into your mind when it says love never fails, it could uh, be speaking of the element of duration or time, which is totally different. Meaning that love never ends. Love goes on forever and ever 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 and ever. So those are very different perspectives of interpreting love never fails. Now, both of those are legitimate. And so, but the context clearly indicates and favors the time component that love endures forever. We know that from the context. So that would be the best translation. And that is exactly what the ESV says, which is a great job. It says love never ends. That's what it should be. Love goes on forever and ever and ever. Because the spiritual gifts don't go on forever. They stop. They peter out and kaput. So that's a key one. Uh, Fails. Another interpretive uh, challenge is the word uh, for, uh, I'll give you the New American Standard, love never fails, but where there are the gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. So prophecy will be done away. So that verb will be done away. What is that? That's the Greek word katargeo. Katargeo used over 20 times in the New Testament, a favorite word of Paul. The context always determines its ultimate meaning, katargeo. He uses it four times in this passage, 8 through 13. Four times. I would posit that we translate it the same all four times because it's the same context. Katargeo. Love never fails, but where there is prophecy, they shall be done away. Katargeo. They shall be done away. Well, ESV says they shall pass away. Similar. King James Version says they shall fail. Mm, Not the best. New NIV says they will cease. That's horrible. Gives the totally wrong impression. So ESV, NASB. Uh, King James translates the same word four times in four different ways in the passage. Cut target. King James says shall fall away, shall fail, shall vanish away, shall be done away, shall be put away. That's not helpful. 
for us English readers. It is the same Greek word. Let's just be consistent, translate it the same way all four times. Thank you, New American Standard. That's what the New American Standard does. Uh, verse 8, prophecy will be done away, katargeo. Knowledge will be done away, katargeo. Uh, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away, uh, katargeo. And then when I grew up to be a man, I put away katargeo. I did away with childish things, katargeo. So the New American Standard is consistent and does the right thing. That helps us. And then finally, the most important interpretive challenge is that word where all the controversy surrounds is the perfect, the perfect, the perfect. What is that? Because that's what the debate is all about. Uh, so if you're a charismatic or a non-cessationist and you believe in speaking in tongues and all the gifts, this is one of your key passages uh, to try to define what is the perfect mean? What is the perfect referring to? Um, and if you look at your text there, when the perfect comes... Um, there's, it, King James was the original that said perfect uh, in verse 10. King James says, but when that which is perfect, so the word for perfect is telos, the teleological argument, telos can mean a lot of different things, perfect. Uh, ESV says perfect, verse 10. Uh, the NIV says completeness. So the NIV doesn't use the word perfect, it says what when completeness comes. That's actually an improvement over the King James and the ESV. And then the New American Standard says perfect. So the key thing is that word is telos. It's a word used frequently in the New Testament. Jesus used it. The Apostle Paul uses telos more than once in the book of Corinthians. He used it in chapter 2, verse 6. And in most of your English Bibles, in chapter 2, verse 6 of Corinthians, for whatever reason, the New American Standard, or the English translators translate telos as mature in chapter 2. And that's the only meaning it can have. Mature. And then in the next chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, nepios, childhood, infancy, uh, is a word used in conjunction with telos. So it's maturity and infancy are being contrasted. And the exact same thing is going on in this passage. Maturity is being contrasted with infancy or being a child. And so I would posit that telos should be translated as mature in verse 10 in 1 Corinthians 13. And any other translation will throw you off and confuse you. By the way, the word telos has seven different legitimate translations in the New Testament. It can mean perfect, complete, full, the end, um, maturity, and a, and a couple others. So it's always the context that determines that. But in Corinthians already, chapter 2, verse 6, it has been translated as maturity. So with that, if you want to scratch out your word perfect in your Bible, you can, or maybe that bothers you and whatever, you write it in the column then. And then write the reference for 1 Corinthians 2 where telos has already been translated as mature. Let's be consistent. And here's um, one important piece of information. Anytime the word telos is used in conjunction or proximity with the word nepios, which is the word for child that Paul uses in this passage and that he uses in chapter 3. So anytime Paul uses telos with nepios, child, it always in the New Testament, telos always means maturity. And so if you applied that principle here, the best translation is maturity, the mature. And it's going to be in contrast to immaturity through the illustration when he talks about he was a little child. Not a sinful child, an immature, underdeveloped child. So with that, let me read you my the living McManus inerrant translation. Yeah, it's inerrant because I'm going to make some commentaries and I hope I'm not wrong. I think it's inerrant, but we'll see. So I'll read uh, 8 through 13 based on the Greek text. 
and some of my biased interpretations. Love never ends, verse 8. Love never ends. It goes on forever. But where the gift of prophecies are, they will be done away by something else outside of themselves. That's based on the passive voice of katargeo. They will be done away by something outside of themselves. They will be done away. Where the gift of tongues exists, they are going to cease in and of themselves by themselves. Because it's the middle voice that's different than the verb used with prophecy. And where there's the gift of the word of knowledge, that gift will be done away, katargao, like prophecy, by something outside of itself because it's in the passive voice. So here's the promise up front. Paul says, love goes on forever and endures forever in contrast to these three gifts that you guys uh, say is the greatest thing since sliced bread, the gift of prophecy, the gift of the word of knowledge, and the gift of tongues. Those are temporary. They ain't nothing compared to love. That's his point. And somebody or something is going to put an end to the prophecy and the, the gift of the word of knowledge and tongues is going to cease in and of itself. It's going to... Whoosh, fizz out all by itself. It's kind of like in the good old days when we used to be able to do fireworks in our own front yard. Man, that was cool. And we would have sparklers and there it was like a stick about yay long and you light it at the top and and it's throwing off all these sparks and it burns your hair and your eyes and your hand and you're loving it as a kid. And you're starting fires and all that good stuff and you're holding the sparkler and it all, it's, but it only lasts about 50 seconds and it just goes and it's burning down like a match. And then poof, it just goes out. And then you start crying as a little kid. I want another one jumping up and down, screaming, steal it from your brother. But anyway, those were sparklers. That is exactly the imagery here of what's going to happen to the gift of tongues. It's going to do its thing. It's going to be used. It's going to edify. It's going to sparkle. It's going to have its heyday. And then in and of itself, all by itself, uh, when it's no longer needed, is it's just going to fizzle out and cease to exist. That is exactly what this verb and the tense and the mood of the verb is communicating. Tongues will cease in and of themselves. When they're no longer uh, needed. Uh, verse 9. For in part we know. From the gift of the word of knowledge. That's what he's talking about. When he says we know. That's not just I know math. I accumulate knowledge. He's talking about the gift of the word of knowledge here. Very important. He's talking about spiritual gifts. And in part we prophesy. So even I as an apostle. When I do prophesy. I, God doesn't give me all the revelation. There are things that Paul knew that John the Apostle didn't know. There are things that John the Apostle knew that Paul didn't know, that Peter didn't know. So that's why Paul is saying, even when I prophesy, or even when you Corinthians prophesy, you're only getting a little bit of information. You prophesy in part. You're not giving uh, given comprehensive information by God. So prophecy is good. It's helpful. It's from God. It's divine revelation. But it's only partial. Here and here and here. It's incremental. That's why we have the progress or progressive revelation. So that's why it's also inferior that prophecy is a gift. It's divine revelation, but it's partial. It's not the whole thing. There are many things we don't know. God has given us everything we need to know, not everything we can know. As a matter of fact, when I was thinking about, that's a great truth. Paul is admitting that when, I, when we prophesy, we prophesy in part, just little, partially, just a little bit. Well, what was it that Paul as a prophet didn't see or wasn't revealed to him? Do you know that the entire book of Revelation could very well have been totally unknown to the Apostle Paul because he died in the mid-60s and John the Apostle wrote Revelation in the 90s. And so all this stuff about the millennium... I bet you the Apostle Paul did not know that the millennium lasted 1,000 years. 
Why do I say that? Well, because it had never been revealed to the church or the saints in all of history that the millennium or that the kingdom of God on earth was a thousand years. God never said that. The first time he ever said it was in the 90s in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6 to the apostle John. That was new information. Peter didn't know that. Paul didn't know that. They were dead. They were in heaven. Well, I guess they didn't know that by then. But anyway, so that's a good example where the apostle Paul didn't know everything. So if you were to ask Paul in the early 60s, so Paul, are you a premillennialist? He'd like, say what? What are you talking about? Well, the length of the millennium. What's the millennium? The kingdom of God. Oh, the kingdom of God in the Old Testament? I don't know about the kingdom of God. There was no time component to it in Paul's mind. So there's an example of him prophesying in part. He didn't know everything. Uh, verse 10. But when comes the mature, definite article, the mature thing, the very specific mature thing or maturity, but when comes maturity... The in part things will be katargeo. They will be done away from the outside. So the mature thing when it comes will render the immature things worthless, useless, superfluous. They will be done away. The in part things. What are the in part things? Well, it's a very specific Greek word or Greek phrase, ek marus. And the gift of prophecy was called in part or partial. And the gift of knowledge was called the partial. The speaking in tongues was not called the partial. Very important. It's not... The perfect thing or the telos thing will do away with tongues. Or tongues will cease when the perfect comes because that isn't what Paul said. Paul said that when the maturity comes, the telos comes, the perfect comes, it will do away with only prophecy and knowledge, not tongues. Because prophecy and knowledge were described as the impart thing, the partial thing. Tongues was not called the impartial thing. That is blatantly obvious in your Greek text. That's why knowing the original language is so important. So when the maturity comes, the perfect comes, the telos things comes, that will account for the doing away of prophecy and knowledge. has no reflection on tongues whatsoever. So when does tongues get done away with? Well, it doesn't get done away with. It fizzles out in and of itself because that's the use of the verb pawao and the voice, the middle voice. It will fizzle out all on its own in God's perfect timing, whenever that is. When it's no longer needed. Uh, verse 11. When I, so, and then Paul gives two illustrations to highlight very simply contrasting that which is mature, which is love, or that which endures, which is love, and that which is immature and temperate, the spiritual gifts, especially tongues, prophecy, the word of knowledge, the word of wisdom. Two illustrations. For example, when I was a child, uh, nepios is the Greek word, infant, it's translated in 1 Corinthians 2, when I was, or cha- verse 3, chapter 3. When I was an infant, when I was a young child, he's not referring to the sinfulness of a child. It's strictly immaturity under development. That's all. So it's a neutral word. It's not a bad word. When I was a little child, I spoke like a child. See, and there's a, even a reference there to speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is uh, a gift that's needed in the immaturity under development of the church early on in its life. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. It was needed. It was used. It reflected the age of the entity, immature and undeveloped. And then I also, when I was a child, I thought like a child. This refers to knowledge, the gift of the word of knowledge. Just like the word of knowledge is a spiritual gift that was early on in the church that was needed by God and used for a temporary purpose, so also uh, there's partial knowledge when you're a child, when you're underdeveloped. So I had knowledge like a child. I thought like a child. And then he uses a word, logizomai, then I, and when I was a child, I also reasoned like a child. This is wisdom. Now, again, I think it's a direct allusion 
to the gift of the word of wisdom that they were having so many problems with, boasting about. And, and I had wisdom as a child that was immature, underdeveloped, and, at one, and as I grew and matured, then I didn't act this way anymore in terms of my speech, my knowledge, or my wisdom when maturity came in. And so that's why he conclu- concludes in verse 11, when I became a man, when I became mature, when I became telos, Going back to verse 10. When I became a man of maturity, I did away, there's katargeo. I did away, the same verb used for prophecy will be done away, and the word of knowledge will be done away. I did away with childish things. So maturity does away with the immature things, of prophecy and the word of knowledge. The mature thing. Verse 12. For now, in this life, we see or we prophesy, we see, he's talking about seeing, and I believe prophesying or understanding God's Truth through divine revelation, I three see through a mirror obscurely. I see, I prophesy. Prophecy is already, it's in part, it's partial, and it's temporary. By the way, King James, I think, said, we look through a glass dimly. The word is not glass, it's mirror. And in the days of the Corinthians, mirrors were made out of metal. They weren't made out of glass. And in Corinth, they made mirrors, so they were very familiar with this illustration. It was just a big old piece of metal and it was shined and buffed as much as possible and they look at it i don't know if you've ever used a piece of metal as a mirror but it doesn't work very well you look at it and like wow am i really that ugly whoa and it's distorted and it doesn't reflect with clarity what you really look like and that's the kind of mirror he's talking about so he's saying it's kind of like when you look in a mirror today and you look at that metal it doesn't truly reflect all the details with exact clarity it's it's an obscure reflection as a matter of fact he uses the word enigma t Enigma, 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 enigmatic. That which is dark, secret, unclear. Same word he uses in Numbers when God said he spoke to Moses face to face. He doesn't speak to Moses in enigmatic statements or dark sayings based on the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Same word. Paul may have been referring or alluding to that passage as a matter of fact here. So, But in this lifetime, we see obscurely spiritual truth We don't see everything, but then in the future, we will see face to face. Right now, I know partially or in part, but then in the future, I will be fully known. It's a different word for know. It's a compound word, an emphatic word for knowing, fully known, just as I have been fully known by God someday in the future in heaven when full maturity arrives. So the church is maturing little by little, incrementally, year by year, over time. And then someday there's going to be full maturity. When there is full maturity, so this is chronological as Paul's taken us through, verse 12 is that the full maturity is going to be when we are actually in the presence of Christ and God Almighty Himself. And we will see God face to face. He will see us face to face. It'll be a glorious thing. He, and we will fully know all things. We won't need prophets in heaven because we'll know everything. What does a prophet do? A prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. He's the intermediary and he only has limited information. When you're in heaven, you don't need a mediator anymore. Save the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we will have full knowledge. Not the same way God does, but to the ability that we can. We won't be hindered anymore. We won't have partial knowledge. It'll be a glorious thing. And then he concludes with uh, verse 13. But now remain faith, hope, and love. This is a triad that is mentioned uh, several times in the New Testament together. Faith, hope, and love. They go together for good reason. Faith, hope, and love. Three of the greatest virtues of the Christian life. And I think he's contrasting faith, hope, and love to the gifts because faith, hope, and love are actually greater than spiritual gifts for several reasons. Did you know that there were no spiritual gifts in the Old Testament? Zero. Spiritual gifts are given to the church. 
there was faith, hope, and love in the Old Testament. There was faith, hope, and love from day one and God created Adam and Eve. Faith, hope, and love has always existed. It's existed longer than spiritual gifts, so that's <clears throat> why I think they are greater than the gifts. And he says these remain, these continue now. Uh, I think in verse 13 when he says these remain, faith, hope, and love, because Paul, uh, prophetically speaking, that it could very well be that some of the spiritual gifts aren't going to remain. It might be imminent that some of these gifts don't remain. I would say today, clearly, the gift of apostleship does not remain with us today. We don't have apostles. Jesus made it clear. There are only 12 plus Paul. They're the foundation stones up in heaven described in Revelation. They laid the foundation of the church. But despite the fact that some gifts are being done away with or petering out on their own, what remains for the church? Faith, hope, and love. These three great virtues. Then he goes on to say, now remain faith, hope, and love. Oh, and by the way, when he was describing love, if you remember that he said, love believes all things. Wow. You know what that means? Love has faith. That's why they are so inextricably linked. Love has faith. Not faith in other people. You shouldn't put faith in people. But I have faith in God about other people I don't have faith in. That's what he means. Love believes all things. Then he also said love hopes all things. So uh, there's a reason why he links these three together. Hope is at the very heart of the definition of true love in this lifetime. By the way, uh, faith, hope, and love. Faith is simply believing God at His Word. And also, this is key, faith always has to do with that which is in the future. Faith has nothing to do with what you're experiencing in the present. Faith always is future-oriented. That's important because you know what? Um, well, it's also true of hope as well. Hope is future-oriented all the time. It's always about the future. Faith is simply believing in God at His Word for the future. Hope is believing in God about the future, about turning bad things good. So it's kind of got a negative component to it. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in the Gospel. Put your hope in the promises of God regarding the future in light of the fall now and your sin now and the challenges now and the persecutions and everything else that brings us down. And we have no hope. We can have hope as Christians. So... Faith and hope all have to do about the future. Um, I pulled out a pop surprise quiz about three weeks ago on the character of God, and I said, does God have humility or is God humble? And I didn't want you to answer out loud. And if you weren't here, that was the quiz. Yes or no? Is God humble? And then I said, um, to the surprise maybe of some of you, I said, no, God the Father is not humble. The reason I said that is it, it says that nowhere in the Bible about God the Father. It does say that in the Gospels about Jesus in his incarnation. When I think he took on humility. But here's another question just to help us think about uh, the characteristics and attributes of God. Surprise question. Don't answer out loud. It's a yes or no question. Does God the Father have faith? Or does God the Father have hope? I would say no. God doesn't have faith. There are a lot of Christians that would say that God does have faith. Oh, yes, of course. God believes in you. I'd say no, he doesn't. He believes that I'm going to blow it every time, maybe. Uh, so God does not have faith, as faith is used in the Bible. As a matter of fact, explicitly in John chapter 2, when everybody was lauding Jesus for how great He was, yippee, cool miracle, can I have your autograph? And the text says, Jesus did not have faith in the people. Why? Because He knew the hearts of men. God doesn't have faith. Why? The main reason is, is because faith 
always has to do with the future. And as humans who are fallen and limited, we don't know the future. We can't control the future. We can't impact the future. But that's why we need faith, because it's always related to the future. God, on the other hand, he knows the future. That's why he doesn't need faith. Not only that, not only does God know the future, get this, God controls the future. Whoa. Okay, I'm going to go one step more. Maybe make you Calvinistic this morning. Not only does God know the future and does God control the future, I would say that God determines the future. Ouch. Wow, why do you say that? The only reason I say that, because it's in the Bible. If you want a passage, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, as clear as can be. So because God knows the future, controls the future, because He is sovereign and He is almighty, and if you deny the fact that God controls the future, then you're undermining some key attributes and characteristics clearly revealed about almighty, sovereign, infinite God in the Bible. He knows the future. He controls the future. He determines the future. That is our God. As a result, God does not have faith. He doesn't need faith. And when believers get to heaven, when we get to heaven, we don't need faith anymore either. And that's why Paul says at the end of verse 13, but now remain in this lifetime for us fallen people as we looked at the future. Faith, hope, and love remain. These three. But the greatest of these three attributes or characteristics is love. And one of the main reasons that love is greater than faith and hope is because as we go and transition into the eternal state, faith will just poof, pass away and because we have the real thing now. All the shadows are gone and we are experiencing the reality of all of God's promises in heaven just as He said before us. We see face to face there is no need of faith anymore in heaven. And because we know as we will fully know. And also there's no need of hope anymore. For the same reason. We have all the knowledge we need. We're not hoping about the future. Uh, According to Revelation, God made it clear that in heaven, the eternal state, God has wiped away everything that is negative for the believer. He has uh, eradicated the sin from your very nature. He has wiped away every tear. There is no more sorrow. There is no more death. You're protected from the death. I mean, that is exciting. That is a, a liberation like no other. And as a result, there is no need for hope in heaven because we have the realization of everything, of all of God's promises in the heaven. So the only thing that remains in terms of virtues is no longer faith, no longer hope, no longer the spiritual gifts, which were for the immature time of the church as it grew, but love which lasts forever and eternity, for God is love. Amazing. So let's go back now uh, and, and just highlight a couple more things regarding these attributes in this passage. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 now, 8 through 13. Highlight a couple things that I haven't addressed by virtue of explaining my translation. And number one is that spiritual gifts are temporary or love never ends. He says love never fails. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Love never ends or love never fails. It goes on forever. But if there are the gifts of prophecy or literally if there is prophecy, the gift of prophecy, and there was in the days of Paul, he was a prophet. The Corinthians had the gift of prophecy. We're going to see in chapter 14, uh, Paul, the entire chapter, all... Forty verses, Paul's primarily explaining the difference between prophecy and tongues. He also contrasts the two and he says that prophecy is greater than the gift of tongues, which is a message we need to hear today for those who want to elevate tongues as the greatest spiritual gift. It's not. As a matter of fact, Paul delineates all the spiritual gifts in order of priority in chapter 12, and guess where he puts tongues? Rock dead bottom. That was his supernaturally divine list. 
And so uh, prophecy is going to be done away. So this is a great thing that, that the Corinthians need to be reminded of is quit taking uh, pride in your gift of prophecy and quit putting your identity in prophecy. Your identity needs to be in Christ and his gospel alone. You can actually turn your spiritual gift into an idol by which it becomes divisive. Do not do that. By the way, Paul is not uh, undermining spiritual gifts. He's got a delicate, beautiful balance here. Spiritual gifts are from God. They are a blessed thing. They're actually needed for the maturity of the church. Every believer needs to find out what their gifts are, use them and help edify and grow the church. We're going to be held accountable for our spiritual gifts. So he's not denigrating them at all or marginalizing spiritual gifts. Some people do that when they come to this and interpret it. They're, they're almost marginalizing and doing away with spiritual gifts altogether. All we need is faithfulness, service, and love. No, that isn't what he's arguing. It's a misuse of gifts is what he's arguing against, with, especially with the wrong motive, not having love when we do it. So uh, love goes on forever, but prophecy, it's temporary. It's only for this life. It's limited. It is partial. As a matter of fact, it is going to be done away. Katargeo, I said that earlier, and I said it was passive, meaning something else is going to do away with prophecy. And what is that thing that's going to do away with prophecy? I think he tells us when maturity comes. And I think he's talking about the maturity of the church, especially if you read Ephesians 4. It is a description of the growth of the church from its very inception in the beginning on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That it's, that's its seminal stage, its most underdeveloped and immature phase. And Paul goes throughout that whole chapter talking about how Christ is trying to develop, grow, and mature the church into a full-grown, mature bride. So the growth and maturity of the church. And God is going to use spiritual gifts at different times to help bring maturity. And some of those gifts, after they have served their purpose, they won't be needed anymore. And some of those gifts I already said were apostleship. God already used that gift. He gave us divine revelation in the foundation of the church in the first century. We don't have apostles anymore. God used prophecy in addition to the prophet of uh, the apostles, they laid the foundation of the church. The prophets did. Prophets also gave us divine revelation. And as a result, we have the New Testament. That's where it came from. It came from apostles and prophets. And now that we have the New Testament and the foundation, we don't need prophecy anymore. So I believe prophecy is gone. It was done away with. It was katargetoized by the maturity of the church, just as Paul says here. By the way, church history is not the authority, but it does attest to the fact that from after the apostles died and Revelation was written from the first century all the way up until the late 1800s, there were no legitimately recognized prophets in the church at all. Then the 1900s comes along and somebody says, I'm a prophet and I spoke in tongues and I got a new revelation and I got this and I got that. And then that crept into the church at first, it was rejected wholesale by the entire Universal Orthodox Church in the early 1900s. But little by little by little, it has grown till today it is commonplace in the evangelical church without even blinking to say, oh, yeah, we got apostles today. Go into the Christian bookstore and on many of the books you turn on the back and it says, Apostle Fred, Apostle Joe, whatever. And they're like, wow, that is impressive. How old is this guy? Must be like 2,000 years old. That's awesome. He deserves to be an apostle. But anyway, and who made him an apostle? I want to know that. Who appointed him an apostle? Who said, you are an apostle? And I want to know what the qualifications are because they're given in the Bible. One of the qualifications of an apostle is you saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You also saw his ministry while he was alive. I don't know how that happens, but anyway. So 
Uh, the maturity of the church, going back to verse 8, love never fails, it endures forever, uh, and so it is a priority over prophecy and spiritual gifts being used the wrong way. Uh, prophecy is going to be done away with, and I believe it was done after the early New Testament church prophets died. And then if there's the gift of tongues, Paul, by the way, is choosing specifically prophecy and tongues and the word of knowledge because that's what they were fighting about. He's not just being random or flippant here. He's being very specific in the spiritual gifts that he's choosing. By the way, you tongue speakers out there, and, and you think you're big shots because you speak in tongues. And Paul's going to say in chapter 14, oh, by the way, I speak in tongues. The, that would have been a good quiz question. Did the Apostle Paul speak in tongues? The answer was yes, absolutely. And in chapter 14, he's going to say, not only do I speak in tongues, I speak in tongues more than anybody here. Take that, you Corinthians. But here he says, just be, just know, tongues is going to fizzle out in and of itself. Tongues will cease. Cease. Cessationist. They're kind of related words. So when people ask me, are you a cessationist? I would say yes. Well, why? Because 1 Corinthians 13.8 says tongues will cease. That's why. And then again, you look at church history from the first century to the 1904. There is no existence of legitimate tongues being used anywhere in the universal church. And it wasn't until the 20th century where it cropped up little by little in kind of occultic groups. Originally, if you search the history... And then in the 1960s exploded, infiltrated the Catholic Church and many other uh, mainline denominations. And today, it's pretty commonly accepted that spiritual uh, speaking in tongues is a gift for today. But it's interesting to do a historical study of it. And some charismatic theologians and Pentecostal theologians are honest about that. And they will say, yeah, that's true. Tongues wasn't around for the first century up to 1904. And their reason is, is because the church was disobedient and ignorant about what the Word of God taught. And so God has poured down his, sec- his third wave, his second and third wave predicted in Joel. And that's why we have uh, the reigniting of tongues and other signs. That would be their explanation. But at least they're being honest with church history, which I appreciate. They're trying to be honest with the text, with history, and uh, trying to be objective. So anyway, uh, verse 8, tongues is going to fizzle away won't be needed anymore. Uh, they will cease in and of themselves. And then the word of knowledge, it's going to be done away by something outside of itself. And I believe it's maturity that did away with the word of knowledge because the word of knowledge was divine revelation. We don't have that anymore today. We've got the Bible written divine revelation. And then he goes on verse nine for we, we know, and, and that would be point two is nine through 12, where his emphasis is that spiritual gifts are limited, especially when contrasted with love. And I already talked about this, how Paul said we know in part by use of the gift of the word of knowledge. It's limited because not everybody had the gift of the word of knowledge. That's why it was limited. So it's not for everybody. Not everybody has the same spiritual gift. And we've talked about that. God is the one that gives the spiritual gifts. So that's why you can't say, and we'll frequently hear, that if you are a Christian and if you are spirit-filled, you need to be speaking in tongues. That is not true. It's not in the Bible. It's contrary to everything Paul's arguing here. Not everybody has the same spiritual gift. And not every Christian should have the gift of speaking in tongues. Only those that God gave the gift to. And it's limited as a result. And verse 9, so we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the mature comes, these partial things, the word of knowledge and prophecy, will be done away by the mature thing. Tell us, verse 10. And that mature thing... I believe, is the maturity and the development and the growth of the church. It's kind of interesting that early on in the book of Acts, in the revelatory days, the underdevelopment and the immaturity of the church, you see a lot about apostles 
and prophets. But you never read anything about pastors early on in the book of Acts. Then later on in the book of Acts, you hear less and less about apostles other than the Apostle Paul and prophets, and you're introduced to pastors or shepherds. And Ephesians 4 tells us that God gave different gifts to the church for the foundation of the church, gifted men or offices, and he gives them chronologically, and he says, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. And I believe that's chronological. So I I believe that the role of pastor supplanted and took over, took the baton from the apostles and the prophets because who were the pastors and shepherds of the first church of Jerusalem? It was the 12 apostles. They were the pastors. They were the shepherds in conjunction with some elders. And then they died. And then all of a sudden you see this, the gift of pastor has arisen and perpetuated, especially in the last of the New Testament epistles by Paul at the end of his life, which are the pastoral epistles. Titus, first and second Timothy, not coincidentally. And pastor as an office and as a gift has continued since the first century when the apostles and the prophets handed the baton to the pastors. And I think the pastors will remain as an office and a gift till Christ comes again. Um, done by maturity. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child, like a child, reason like a child, but when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Again, that's the illustration of maturity that he's using just practically. Same way I grew up, the church is going to grow up. When you're a child, you do certain things, you need certain things. When you are an adult, you don't need things that you needed as a child. You don't need a bib anymore when you're 17, hopefully, like you did when you were a diaper or those kind of things, or uh, your binky or your pacifier. You grow up, you mature. Same with the church. God deals with the church chronologically as it progresses and matures. That's the illustration. And then in verse 12, a different illustration which we already talked about, looking in this mirror that's a piece of metal that is not clear. So that is all undergirding his point that spiritual gifts are limited, therefore don't boast in your showy spiritual gifts. And then finally, his main point, love endures forever, which takes him back to chapter 13, verse 1, that it's all about love. And if love is lacking, you are nothing, church. You are a horrible testimony. You grieve the heart of Christ. Be like Christ Love God, love your neighbor, that fulfills everything. So now with that exhortation, he's going to transition into chapter 14. And now look at chapter 14, verse 1, to prepare us for next time. Again, when Paul wrote his letter in Corinthians, he didn't break it down in verses and chapters. So when Paul's writing, he didn't have chapter... Okay, chapter 14, verse 1. He didn't do that. It's like a letter you would write to a friend or to a relative or your mother or a sweetheart or whatever. You're not writing verse breaks and chapter breaks in a normal letter and he wasn't doing that either so that's why it's important to remember that the chapter 14 verse 1 goes with chapter 13 verse 13 there's continuity there it shouldn't be broken it's not abrupt the theme of verse 13 in chapter 13 is love the theme of chapter 14 verse 1 is love look at it the verse he says pursue love pursue love pursue love in light of everything i've said pursue love you have been pursuing the showy gifts sinfully so don't do that anymore Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spirituals. And we're going to talk about what that means next week. With that, let's conclude with the the takeaway for us. Very practical. Asking the Holy Spirit to apply these truths to our life. And it's been incredibly challenging, especially as I went three weeks over definitions of love in action. That love has a long fuse 
and doesn't blow up towards people when they irritate you. And I think every single one of us is, is challenged with that. You told me you were challenged with I was getting emails, personal conversations, um, people communicating with me regularly that, wow, that, man, that sermon you preached on love was challenging. That was convicting. That was hard. And I'm there, amen, I hear you. Think about how I feel. I'm the biggest hypocrite in the church. I gotta stand up there like I'm an authority on love. Peace, love, baby. No. This is more, just as convicting for me, if not more so, because I have to be the voice of it. Um, and it's a supernatural divine standard that we can't meet without God's grace, help, energizing spirit, and accountability. We need His help to pursue this. So continue in prayer in your own life, asking God to help you to practice what you already know to be true of love. And again, practicing in your own home first with those around you, your relatives, your spouse, and going from concentric circles out, praying very deliberately, asking God to give you that supernatural patience or help from the Spirit or conviction of sin or removing the blinders that we need to be able to do this and that He empowers us to do this. So that's on the personal level, but also pray about your church, GBF, or whatever church you attend. God, help us to be a loving church. God, help us to not be out of balance and have the wrong priorities. We, we need God's help desperately to maintain this very difficult balance. God answers that prayer. He will help your church if you pray for your church. And it's all for His glory. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for our time together in His Word. Father, we do thank You for uh, the treasure of Your Word. God, thank You for um, the things Paul has to say as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. So we know what he says is true, it is reliable, it's authoritative and binding. Practical, relevant, piercing to the heart. Continue to remind us of your expectation of us as believers to be loving like Christ. God, forgive us when we fail and when we sin. Keep our hearts soft and tender towards you. God, help our church collectively as a body to live this way as well. In a way that pleases you, in a way that reflects Christ's likeness in the world as unbelievers may be looking on. And again, all for your glory. God, we thank you for this time. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.